Um, hello, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Mina Menta. I work with the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative Africa Office, um, which is in Accra, Ghana. We work to ensure the practical realization of human rights in countries of the Commonwealth. Um, and that's the reason why um, this afternoon, because we work in human rights, I'm moderating the session. Well, our focal areas are access to justice, access to information, and general human rights monitoring. And this afternoon, we are having a conversation as part of the University of Ghana Law School's um, program on law in crisis. This is something that they started during this COVID era. And this is the third in um, the sessions that they've been having. Um, this is a setup to engage various people on the situations that have come out, out of this COVID pandemic, how we find ourselves, and what are some of the challenges people are having, the experiences just to encourage ourselves and just to learn from each other. If you, were make, you may recall, several countries in, on the globe um, promulgated all kinds of laws during this COVID pandemic. Some of them have been challenged. In some of the countries, they've challenged these laws. In Ghana is not different. We um, passed a legislation to ensure that we will be able to manage the COVID situation. And our law has been criticized by quite a number of people. Be it as it may, we are still with this COVID era. And this afternoon, we are here to engage a number of people who are well-versed in the law. Some of them are well-versed in human rights. So have just a conversation and discussion and to introduce the panelists, I'll start with um, the first on my list, the list that I have. Um, she's Mercy Labi. She is the Deputy Commissioner of the Commission on Human Rights and Administrative Justice, Ghana. She has been working with the Commission since 2005 and has been the director of the Kumasi, the Ashanti region, until her promotion to become the, the commissioner. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Law and, political, and Politics from the University of Ghana, and a Master's of Arts in Human Rights, Conflict and Peace Studies from the University of Education, Winneba. Mercy, you are most welcome to this panel discussion. Thank you, Nina, and I'm very pleased to be part of this discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Mercy. What I didn't say is that Mercy and I have done a lot of work together. She used to support me <laughs> a lot in Kumasi, being a human rights work. And she ran away and came to Accra, so I don't get that support. That uh -oh. I <laughs> Nina, sorry for that. Uh, we will still consider to work together. <laughs> uh, okay. The, the, the next person, and I'm not being um, 
being a what do you call it, gender bias because that's the list that I have. So I didn't arrange it in that manner. The second person is Dr. Nena Afei Ajufu. Don, have I mentioned your name correctly? Thumbs up, thank you. <laughs> Dr. Nena Afei is a lawyer and an academic specializing in law and technology. She is a, a senior lecturer of law and technology at the School of Law, Swansea University of United Kingdom, Swansea University, United Kingdom, where she teaches digital rights, IP innovation, and law, blockchain, and the law, blockchain and the law. Um, it's quite long, but I will just talk about the fact that she was a bachelor's degree in LLB in law, a master's and LLM in international uh, information technology law, and also a Bachelor of Laws degree, LLD International Doc. It is quite long. <laughs> <laughs> and she's attended various courses with academic credits, including an international criminal law course at the University of Salzburg. Um, I'll cut it short and say that as a at last year, she was also in Ghana. And I think she was lecturing at the University of Ghana, if I am correct. And now she is domiciled in the UK. And it's a pleasure to have Doc with us um, this afternoon. So Doc, we are most welcome to this panel discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mina. It's a pleasure. And thanks for the opportunity to engage um, with fellow colleagues on this very fundamental discussion. The next on my list is Dr. Mr. Michael Janyaku. And Mr. Janyaku is a Ghanaian lawyer with a, with a close to a decade experience working on several legal and multidisciplinary projects across Africa and beyond. His experience has largely been in the areas of public international law, international human rights law, and democratization in Africa. Um, he is currently a manager, manager litigation and implementation at the Center for Human Rights, University of Pretoria. Mr. Danyako, welcome to the panel discussion. Thank you very much, Mina. I'm looking forward to the discussion. And um, the last but not the least is um, Dr. Jonas. I think we, we haven't been able to reach him yet. And so I would introduce him when um, we are able to connect with him. So for the purposes of time, I've given a brief background as to um, what- I am, I am. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, Dr. Jonas. I'm already. Ah. Wow. Oh, yeah. hello, wow. Dr. Jonas. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How are you, sir? Can you hear Dr. Jonas? Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. And it's very nice to be joining this uh, distinguished lineup of experts. Thank you. I mean, it was quite a challenge getting through to you, but I think now you are here. So let me just give a brief background. Uh, Dr. Jonas Bemita Adiniu, did I pronounce your name correctly? Exactly. Okay. Is currently an assistant professor at Addis Ababa University School of Law. He obtained his degree in law from the Faculty of Law of Addis Ababa University in July 1998. 
He also completed a master's, his master's of arts in, the, in theory and practice of human rights at the Norwegian Center for Human Rights, University of Oslo. He obtained his PhD degree in May 2017, magna cum laude from Martin Luther University, Germany. Um, I will jump the rest. His areas of interest include human rights, land rights, international humanitarian law, and refugee rights. Dr. Jonas, it's a pleasure to have you on this panel. You are most welcome. Thank, thank you very much, madam. Since you were not here when we started, this whole thing and the discussion would go on for between 45, one hour, 45 minutes and two hours. And there'll be discussions among panelists, panelists for about an hour and 25 minutes. Then we'll have 20 minutes for questions and answers, then final remarks. In terms of the discussions, I will set the ball rolling with questions. And the main question, the discussant will have four minutes to talk. And then if there are any other interventions, two minutes. So I am hoping that um, I'll be able to manage the time properly so that this will be beneficial to all of us. So, okay. Since we are talking about human rights and, and the discussion is that reimagining the place of human rights in post-COVID, COVID-19 Ghana, imagining the place of human rights in post-COVID-19 Ghana. Um, I will start with somebody who, uh, in the minds of quite a number of Ghanaians, works in an institution is supposed to be the one to ensure that human rights in Ghana are respected and so, Messi, um, we talk about human rights, human rights, human rights, human rights, and people have all kinds of um, definitions and all kinds of um, uh, 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 meanings to, to it. I just want us to, from your perspective, as somebody <laughs> for a very long time and went to the commission on human rights and administrative justice in Ghana, broadly. Just let's have a conversation on what you think human rights are in terms of the experiences that you've had with the different views and different practical issues that have come up. Yeah, thank you, Nina. And thank you for the question. Uh, as you said, I've worked with the Commission on Human Rights for about 15 years now. And Ghana, you know what, we, when we are talking about human rights, what we are talking about. You know, human rights, it's um, a right inherent in all human beings. No matter the color, the race, the religion, origin, whatever. When you come to Ghana, when you look at our constitution, we have put all our rights of a bill in our constitution, when you take the 1992 constitution, you, you, you look at chapter five, you get all the rights in there. So generally, when we are looking at human rights, we are looking at inherent right, birthright, things that you were born with. Without that, you cannot live. You are entitled to it. 
And you see, as I always say, human rights has some two basic principles, which is equality and non-discrimination. That's the main basic principles of human rights, equality and non-discrimination. When you come down, you see that the human rights, we have some characteristics, which is universality, like wherever you go, you are entitled to human rights. When you look at the 1992 constitution in Ghana, it states that every person, it didn't say citizens, every person in Ghana is entitled to this right. So it's universal and it's something inalienable. You cannot take it from somebody. It's also interdependent. You cannot say that you are giving me right to life and you are not giving me right to health. So it goes together. That is the basic uh, characteristics and principles of human rights. Human rights look at equality, non-discrimination, uh, security of the person. So if we are talking about human rights in Ghana, all these things, we have put it in our constitution. And it even goes beyond that. When you look at Article 33 of that constitution, it states that the bills that we have put in our chapter five, if there is a human rights issue, which is not stated in our chapter five, but it's in the international instrument, Ghana is bound by the international instrument. So it's that Ghana, we are more oriented to human rights. We look at the right of every person in Ghana. And when you come to other things that we, the commission has been doing, the commission is a human rights institution for Ghana. So we handled all the human rights issues that Ghana is entitled and internationally we report to the international uh, institutions who are responsible for human rights. So Ghana, as Nina, you know, our uh, human rights standard, I can say is uh, very high. Uh, looking at the things that we do, COVID has come in and as you said, there were a lot of laws and people were looking at it. Uh, why this laws, why the other laws, you look at it and you see that during COVID, some of the things, uh, some of the human rights that was at stake was movement, right to movement. When the lockdown came in, you could see that people right to move were taken out from them. And this one was based on the laws or the powers given to the president to uh, give out when there is an emergency. This one, this uh, lockdown, people were actually looking at how to move out. Your right to movement were taken from you. Your, Nina, you want to talk? Yes, and your, I think your, your, your point will dovetail us into the next part of it. So let me just, Very well. uh, because you, you said that um, Ghana human rights standard is quite high. Yes. I, I wanted to take um, something from Dr. Jonas, since one of his interests is um, human rights. I mean, he stated, he stated that that's one of the interest, his key interests. Dr. Jonas, I don't know whether you, you, you are familiar with 
Ghana's um, uh, COVID-19 legislations. Are you familiar with them? Not much. Not much, okay. Because maybe we're familiar, I was going to ask you, based on what Messi said, that um, Ghana and human rights standards are quite high. However, when you look at the COVID legislation that came out, there were a lot of clawbacks. And so in terms of human rights, my thinking was that uh, looking at broadly, because Ghana's law was not totally any different from any other country. For example, movement was limited. There were people were fined to the tune of, um, if you put it into dollars, um, about $2,000 or $3,000 if you, um, you, 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 you fall victim to fall foul to any of the COVID um, uh, uh, laws. Um, people were incarcerated and people's rights were curtailed in a manner that quite a number of people felt that it was um, way above board. So if you look at that, in terms of what we are talking about, and you look at the COVID-19 and, 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 and try to just oppose the two. Would you say that from what you, the lessons that you've heard about Ghana and the kind of laws that I'm, and the kind of things that I'm talking about in terms of our human rights law, would you say that um, we went a bit overboard? Would you say that it affects um, the understanding of practical human rights in practice? Uh, of course, Ghana is a country which is uh, reputed for a very good record uh, of uh, human rights. And uh, compared to many other African countries, Ghana enjoys uh, more uh, reputation when it comes to uh, respect and protection of human rights. And uh, speaking of human rights, as was already mentioned, when we speak of human rights, these are basic standards that no person can live in dignity, without which that no person can live in dignity. So that the respect and protection of human rights standards is a precondition for people to be able to live in dignity. And as we all know that human rights are inalienable, and that, that it's not possible for one to be able to forfeit or waive one's right. It's not possible for one to transfer one's rights, as we all know. Human rights, we say, are universal in the sense that they are everywhere and everywhere the same. Of course, this may be, uh, you know, uh, su subject to debate, although it could be arguable. Moreover, that human rights are rights in the sense that uh, these are not charity. And uh, we assert our rights as justified, valid, legal claims as of rights and not just as a matter of charity or um, convenience. Moreover, that human rights imply duties, the duty to respect, the duty to protect, and also the duty to uh, fulfill, which is further divided into the duty to facilitate and the duty to provide, that human rights are also the obligation to promote, to promote meaning public education on a variety of uh, issues of uh, concern of human rights. And in regard to the issues you uh, just raised, um, there have been containment measures which have been enacted by many countries across the globe for that matter, including 
uh, in Ghana. Uh, such measures such as, for instance, uh, the prohibition of public gathering and also the obligation to wear masks in some places and also restrictions on transportation and uh, a number of other such uh, similar. Um, it was not possible, for instance, in the Ethiopian scenario for people to congregate more than a limited number, uh, be it in uh, funerals. In funerals, the maximum number of people who are supposed to be there is only 50. Thus, uh, yes, containment measures, emergency measures have been enacted in many countries across the globe, uh, including that of Ghana. However, the implementation of these containment measures, which is supposed to ensure the right to life and which is motivated by the need to ensure the right to life has been somewhat curtailed in the actual implementation of these containment measures. As you just mentioned, there have been instances where people have been subject to monetary fines for failure to comply with some of these and uh, the legality or otherwise of these measures is called into question. I agree with you that the enforcement uh, has not been without controversies. Yeah. And thank you very much, Doug. Um, I don't know if any um, of the other panelists have something to say, but I would love to, from what he has said, um, it gives uh, credence to some of the um, uh, school of thoughts that say that um, it is not practical to, to, to uphold human rights in all situations and that human rights can be with in certain situations and that um, as far as they are concerned in state of emergency, there's nothing like human rights. Um, uh, Dr. Nenna, yes. what's your take on that one? Um, thank you very much, Mina. Um, I must agree with Mercy that in the first instance, we would always argue that human rights are universal, they are inalienable, but sometimes those definitions seem to place human rights in abstract positions because coming back to the position of the state, human rights will generally not be regarded as absolute, but conditional based on certain situations. And I would basically, you know, try to address the Ghanaian situation in terms of the pandemic. Now, the reality is that in the first instance, the state is regarded as a guarantor of rights, but all the same, human rights would not remain absolute in circumstances of national security, you know, public security, public health, issues of public health, and other issues that may focus on maintaining the welfare of the state. And so in the first instance, what I would say is that Ghana sort of putting huge efforts in addressing COVID-19 in the first instance when, you know, at the emergence of COVID-19 compared to other African states. But I think Article 25 of the Universal Declaration is of essence here. And the question is, if Ghana measured up in terms of the expectations of Article 25 of the Universal Declaration. Now, propagating the right to health is something, but you cannot regard the right to health in abstraction of other human rights. 
You cannot think about promoting the right to health while restricting the right to freedom of movement, restricting the right to education. There must be a balance. Now, in addressing the Ghanaian situation, for example, I would remain, remember that the closing of the airport was quite abrupt and a lot of people, and I'm speaking from a personal experience, someone in Ghana from Ghana was stranded in my house for four months. The approach to human rights, no matter the circumstances, even in a situation of national security, even in a situation of public health, must give consideration to balancing human rights as against the expression of the rights of the state. I would also talk about the right to education. I mean, the UK, for example, my students have experienced uninterrupted access to education. You cannot say the same for Ghana, for Ghanaian students. So many people have not had access to the internet. People have not been able to exercise or realize their right to education, even in situations where education is not free. So I would say that the hallmark of understanding if Ghana's approach is quite commendable is to go back to understanding a people-centered approach to how COVID-19 has been handled. And I would also say that in reality, I think for me, COVID-19 is forcing a reconsideration of the definition of what human rights are. Now we have to even consider rights online. We have to think about digital human rights, online privacy, rights to digital data protection. What has Ghana done about protecting people's data? What has Ghana done in terms of balancing the right to privacy as against interception, as against mass surveillance, even when it is needed? What has Ghana done in terms of freedom of information? Have people had access to information regarding health? in consideration of different languages. So it's so easy to look at it in terms of policy and say Ghana has taken center stage because, oh, there was testing. They were advanced compared to other states. But when we come to balancing underpinnings of human rights, I think the discussion may take a different dimension in terms of holding the state responsible for how they have promoted human rights in terms of COVID-19. Thank you. The number of issues, quite a number of issues has, um, as, as I think I can see Michael's hand up. Michael, you want to make an intervention? Yes, no, I just, just- uh, yeah, I was going to come to you anyway. So when you make an intervention, then you can, we can um, answer another question for me. So you go on with the intervention. No, very well. I mean, I just, I think I, I just wanted to say that perhaps it is quite settled at least under international human rights law that, you know, states have the right to either restrict human rights uh, generally or in certain emergency situations to even suspend the rights completely as takes certain precautions and uh, that you know the, the kind of precautions that they take I mean the the, the measures that are, are taken to either suspend or restrict the rights should be proportionate to the, the aims that the state seeks to achieve so that it is not that it's it's a blanket you know suspension of, of the rights without a legitimate aim that even if you have a legitimate aim in, 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 in the, the restriction or the suspension of this particular right, you need to justify what these aims are. And to sort of, uh, as, uh, as uh, Nena was balanced, uh, the aims that the state seeks to achieve as against the kind of hardship that will be, you know, uh, the individual or the community when, when, when these kinds of, of, of rights are restricted. So that I think states are always advised to act, uh, act in, in, in proportionate manner to the kind of aims that they, they seek to achieve. So that's just a small clarification. But you can come to me now. 
and um, um, and it's 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 good that you are saying I can come to you because you the conversation that you have started, the discussion that you have started, actually flows into um what I was going to ask you because you are talking about um whether it's uh, proportionate, it should it should be proportionate, although the international human rights law um accepts that sometimes rights have to be suspended. Uh, you are talking about uh, the proportion. And my question is, I mean, if you, what, what do you think um, the, the, um, how has the pandemic affected the enjoyment of human rights, both locally in Ghana, because I mean, you are Ghanaian, so obviously, although you live in South Africa, you have family here, so you'll be following um, internationally. Do you think that um, the measures that Ghana put out, they, were they proportionate? I mean, has the pandemic affected uh, human rights to a very high degree in Ghana, in your view, um, as uh, somebody who is in the sector? And then even globally, would you say that, I mean, it's, uh, yes, the pandemic has affected human rights, but to what extent has it affected human rights? I mean, I, I think, uh, well, thank you for the question. It's quite an important. I think generally the pandemic has affected like, literally all forms of human rights. I mean, initially it started as a public health issue, which I mean, one thing, the primary issue at stake now is the right to health. But I mean, over time we recognize that, you know, because of the sort of responses that, you know, states had to adopt to counter the, the spread of, of the virus, you had a number of rights which were either limited, suspended completely. I mean, in many instances you couldn't move out of the country, you know, the borders were, were closed. So essentially your freedom of movement is completely suspended, not, not just, you know, restricted basically. You could still move within the country at some point, but you couldn't leave the country or get into the country unless you had a specific, you know, special dispensation. But also we see that, you know, things like your right to associate with us were limited because gatherings were prohibited. The number of people who were allowed to, you know, go to places like, uh, church or mosque or you know social gatherings were limited to a specific number of individuals so basic rights like your right to associate you know your freedom to assembly and to 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 protest or to demonstrate was also limited because you really could not exercise this rights because governments were scared that uh, the more people come together the higher the the, the the potential that they would spread the virus uh, among each other but we see also generally that i mean perhaps Every form of the rights were, were affected. You know, children couldn't go to school because it's too dangerous to 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 keep too many uh, children in in the same classroom with the potential that they might, you know, infect each other. You you could not even safely vote in some places because you know the the kind of exposure that they they, they actually would 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 have by going out, joining the queue, and you know waiting to to, to cast a ballot. So in in general, the the, the, the pandemic has perhaps um, reinforced the idea that human rights are interrelated, interconnected, and interdependent, and that you know we 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 need to be perhaps very proud of the way that we approached our our idea of human rights. Because I think for for and we, I mean, I, and I I suppose we're speaking about the Ghanaian situation. We have really focused on civil and political rights to the neglect of economic, social, and cultural rights. We do quite quite well when it comes to civil and political rights. If, if you have a pandemic, social distance, and uh, 
you know, staying at home is, is, is an important measure to, to counter the pandemic. Meanwhile, the, the, the estimates are that we have 1.7 million housing deficits, which means there are a lot of people who don't actually have, you know, sufficient housing that they could stay a, a long period of time without feeling uh, like they, they, they're tired of this place and they need to, to step out of, of the house. You know, you have issues like washing of hands and access to water and, and sanitation. And in many communities, these are not things that are easily available. So I think the pandemic has perhaps exposed the, the kind of skewed understanding that we have treated human rights, especially when, when, when it comes to the, the, the Ghanaian context and that we have not some of the basic things like you know, social security. You know, people are losing their jobs because uh, there's an economic meltdown. You know, the, the economy is, but there is no support system from the state to, to actually oh, um, allow people sorry to continue to, their life. Michael, sorry to cut you in, but... Helping the state to... to Hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. Yeah, I can hear you. Hello. Michael, can you hear me? I, I, I can hear you, Mina. Okay. And um, I started to cut you in, but when you talked about um, those... Um, the social security and the loss of jobs. It's, well, obviously, um, a lot of people are of the opinion that in Ghana, the, the rights that was hardly affected is the civil and political rights. The people think that that right was not affected in any way at all. But then when you look at um, the economic social rights and cultural rights, I think that in my view, um, or in the view of a lot of, 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 a lot of people, it's, it's global, it's not... Um, specific to Ghana that in terms of those rights, Ghana is probably doing better than most countries. Um, I don't know if um, you would agree with that in one minute, because I need to, to move on to one minute, because you raised no, I, I, I think that the challenge of social uh, and cultural rights is, is global as, as you, you speak, because I mean, these are usually right, quite a substantial financial outlay in actually, you know, fulfilling them. But I suppose we have not really, I mean, and I speak because the, 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 the Constitutional Re uh, Review Commission, for instance, amended that things like housing, uh, you know, water and food should be included in the Constitution as justiciable right. But the government white paper that, you know, was issued after the report was submitted said that they don't want to include them as justiciable rights. And that the, these rights reserved for the, you know, directive principles of state policy, which shows a certain lack of commitment, really, uh, on the part of, 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 of the government when it comes to the realization of this right. So I understand that it's a global problem, but I think that we need to be very, you know, intentional that these are problems that we actually want to solve and not to just pay lip, uh, lip service to them. Um, thank you very much um, for the... the, 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 the the comments. Um, the same uh, um, question to um, Mercy. Hello, Mercy. Hello, Nina. Yes, so you work with the Commission on Human Rights and Administrative Justice. And I was saying that a lot of people are saying that um, when it comes to um, civil and political rights, well, it, 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 it's not a right that was heavily affected in most places. 
and that for the rest, the economic rights, social rights, cultural rights, and all the other rights, it's a global issue. And that, and when you look at Ghana, in terms of how we handle the um, pandemic, um, and we are handling it, those rights, um, we, we are doing quite well. What would be your take on that one? Yeah, thank you, Nina. Um, as uh, Nina was talking, he was talking about right to privacy and other things. Yeah, you could see that we are supposed to suspend some rights when it comes to emergency. The proportionate that we've talking about is one of the things, but we have to look at something, the principle of necessity, whether it was necessary to do that. Because the whole uh, population or the people in the country lives were at stake. So under the issue of um, lockdowns, closing of borders, was it necessary? We have to look at that one. When I will come back to uh, Michael's issue in respect of the civil and political right that was affected in Ghana. As you could see, when you go to some communities, they don't even have a place to sleep. And that was a challenge. You go to one, some communities and even one room will take, up, take about six, seven people in a room, a kiosk. And look at this kind of situation where we have supposed to do social distancing. These were some of the issues we are looking at. Ghana's, uh, the people in the informal sector, it's quite high. And the lockdown, uh, don't go out. You are not supposed to work, uh, go to your workplaces and other things. People were even struggling to have food on the table. So these were the issues or human rights violations that took place during the peak of COVID, when Ghana, especially Accra and then some uh, greater Kumasi and other places went on lockdown. You could see that there's another leg of issue that came out during the COVID and which is a human rights issue, it's stigma and discrimination related to COVID. People were being stigmatized. The people who have contracted the disease and they've been uh, tested negative comes out and the family don't even want to see them. They don't want to uh, associate with them. It, it went to the point that even a child who was going to buy something was quoted at that you come from a COVID home. All these things, it's been- Mercy. Yeah. Just to make a, don't you think it's out of fear? that people were just, they were just scared. It's not that the people were just, I mean, there was so much fear around, so people were just afraid. So it wasn't that um, people just set out to do that, but fear was the cause. Don't you think that that was um, the issue rather than people just trying to be mean? Yeah, I agree with you. That was fear. That was fear of death. And that one, it's something which all of us are afraid of. But do we have to stigmatize them? Do we have to do away with them, especially even those who have tested negative? That gives us the kind of information that went out. And that comes under a right to information. Things that came out 
a cause of messages that people uh, give in the social media and other things. So even as we are speaking now, we are still uh, doing programs, educating people, handling uh, issues of stigma and discrimination related to COVID. So it's, it's work, it, it was there, but previously, you know, it's like people didn't understand the whole thing. People didn't understand the COVID and when you are tested negative, what's, whether you can even transmit it or whatever. So that was the issue and that brought about stigmatization and it's still the stigmatization is still there and discrimination. You go to some workplaces and you say that uh, you, you are COVID, whatever, so we cannot work with you, especially the private sector. People have lost their job because they have contracted COVID. But, but um, talking about all these things, Mercy, um, yes. I, I want um, us to look at this angle. All these things that we are talking about, yes. I went back to the, um, the civil and political rights. Has, we, has it really affected democratic ideals? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you, but I wanted um, uh, uh, Nena to, to take that one. Has it really affected democratic, has the public, um, COVID pandemic affected democratic ideals in any way? And if they have, um, I mean, how, how so? I, I, I can tell you that this question will be approached differently from yeah. Different, if I could say, maybe parties, you know, in terms of politics and a general understanding of what democratic constitutions are. Because indeed, I could say that in terms of understandings of democracy, one party could say, oh, COVID 19 has generally favored, you know, another could say, no, it hasn't favored. But in terms of civil and political rights, um, I generally would not want to speak so much about Ghana because I was not there. I would say that the government did very well in ensuring that you know people exercise their civil and political rights in terms of um, democratic um, stipulations, and that is one of it. But I would also not want to limit you know the discussion just to oh what happened in terms of people exercising voting rights because voting rights are just you know a tiny aspect of the realization of civil and political rights. Now, and I would say that generally, I would refuse going back to Messi's points that, you know, it has not been affected generally. There has been efforts that should be accepted. For example, talking about information being given about, and I said this earlier, the villager living in a deep part speaking Gan region, can the person understand the messages that are being forwarded? In that instance, that person has not fully exercised their right to information. And these are civil and political rights. You know, so like Michael said, whether understanding in terms of democracy, restrictions are allowed. And interestingly in Ghana, when you go to chapter five of the constitution, which talks about fundamental human rights, immediately thereafter, it discusses emergency powers, which is something very interesting. Now, as Michael said, restrictions are allowed, they can be justified, but there are things we need to consider. Is there a legal basis? Are they strictly necessary? Is there scientific evidence? Yes, backed in this instance, yes. Should it be arbitrary? And that is why I talked about the manner in which the airport was closed. 
Was it an arbitrary move without giving people, you know, considering, you know, people in that approach? Is it also being discriminatory? And I can tell you, even within the considerations of what we we'll call a democratic setting, yes, and this is not limited to Ghana alone. I am not being biased in saying it is Ghana. It has been discriminatory in approach. The person in East Legon would have been tested, would have had his rights considered, but not in the same measure as someone maybe in the deep part of Bogatanga. I've never been, I'm just saying, you know. So, you know, and another thing to consider for me is that in reality, going back to what Messi has said, the crux of this, the fundamental of this discussion is that the COVID-19 situation has starkly laid bare how we give priority to human rights, or I can say the lack of priority to human rights, whether civil and political, whether social and, and economic. You have emergency powers as a state, but before you can exercise it in a situation of public health, you must consider what conditions did you leave what conditions did you put in place for the citizenry to still enjoy fundamental human rights? But I also agree with Mercy because indeed, global inequalities must always be reflected in inequalities in how we address human rights. So that the way the situation in Ghana would not be the situation in a highly developed state. And so like she talked about people living in the same rooms, what do you do in such a situation? You know, but I must say that, like I, you know, I've been emphasizing, I am not saying Ghana has not done well to its efforts. Has it been adequate? No. Has it been non-discriminatory? No. Has it been based on equality? No. Has it been based on a human rights-based approach? No. It was rather more a consideration of what the understanding of the welfare of the state means as against prioritizing rights per se. So in terms of, if we were to think of it in terms of the voting, yes, I think Ghana is an example for many African states. If you consider what is just happening in Uganda and other places, absolutely yes. But I think a lot more could have been done considering the scale and the severity of the pandemic. I'm, I can tell you that people would have died without even understanding what has happened to them in terms of COVID-19. Sometimes the figures we are putting out are not even exactly the figures, but then civil and political rights are more than just you know, voting, which has happened in Ghana this year. There are so many other rights to consider, freedom of movement, right to life. If you do not um, provide adequate standards of health and a person loses their life, then it's as good as taking away their right to life if the state is in a position to do that. And actually, the state is the primary duty holder. And we should stop giving excuses. Oh, this is how it is. This is how it is. Rights are meant to be respected. And I think it is time we begin to hold states accountable, particularly in Africa. Enough of this hierarchy of rights, which in fact is a reality. But I think we give so much credence to hierarchy of rights and saying that states are rather obligated on the basis of progressive realization. It is time we begin to hold states in Africa accountable in the same measures as should be expected, but of course, considering global inequalities. And I, I think I should just stop there for now. I can, I can see Michael's hand up. But Michael, before you come in, I wanted um, Dr. Jonas to also um, have a go at the same issue. I, I mean, the pandemic, has it really, really affected democratic ideals? And if so, how? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mina. And as you've correctly noted, yes, it has affected many democratic ideals. 
for that matter, the number of countries which have actually put out uh, uh, so many um, uh, countries came up with emergency declarations. And uh, some of these emergency declarations have actually been used for other intents and purposes. Uh, ostensibly, emergency declarations are out there for the purpose of maintaining the right to life, ensuring the right to health of the public and uh, the rest of it. But what actually transpired was a curtailment of freedom of expression, curtailment of assembly, and a number of other civil and political rights. Now, what we witnessed in relation to civil and political rights, for instance, uh, police brutality in the implementation of some of these measures, like a situation whereby uh, some people have been arrested for failure to wear masks, and there is no any legal basis for these kinds of measures to take place. Uh, you have a situation where disproportionate impact of the pandemic and the ensuing consequences on groups of uh, society, including women. Women have been disproportionately affected due to uh, stay-at-home orders and ensuing domestic violence because most women found themselves in abusive circumstances. They were not in a position to be able to extricate themselves from, and there was no any uh, room for crisis shelter or safe home in many African countries. And uh, I agree with Dr. Nena uh, that Ghana, by and large, appears to have done much better as compared to a number of other African countries. And you have a situation where persons with disabilities, for instance, were not in a position to be able to, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, they were not given sufficient attention and there was lack of uh, information for persons with disabilities in a format in a, which is accessible to them. And uh, there are a number of people who were left behind in such a situation. Also, we have xenophobic attack in parts of uh, Africa, like in our country, in Ethiopia, for instance, because of the fact that the first person who was contracted coronavirus in Ethiopia was a foreigner. And as a result, a number of locals were trying to just, you know, discriminate uh, foreign people and xenophobic attack ensued as a result of this. And we have a situation where there was attack against health workers, frontline health workers. Although these are the people who are supposed to be protecting the life and health of individuals, health workers were attacked in some instances. And we have a situation where coronavirus uh, affected even prison populations. Uh, as a result, conditions of imprisonment in many African countries, overcrowding, incarceration of you know, the prison population, which actually resulted in a number of uh, uh, problems in many uh, African countries. We have a situation where prisoners, inmates of prison, contracted the virus while they are in police custody. And we have problems like, for instance, the uh, uh, refugees. In refugee campus, you have a problem whereby you have uh, uh, some of the refugees who contracted uh, uh, coronavirus. So what, one thing that uh, actually transpired in the course of this is, as was already mentioned, overcrowding and incarceration of uh, inmates should be reconsidered. We need to look for alternative to detention and non-custodial forms of punishment. And we should not really be proceeding only to incarceration as for form of punishment, something that needs to be considered. As Dr. Nina said, this pandemic actually laid bare many problems in Africa and that we need to look into the extent. 
we have a situation where journalists have been targeted for criticizing the handling of the pandemic. And Doc, in the interest of time, can you round up to yeah. summarize your points so that we can... Yes. So the main point... Thank you, Dr. Nina. Uh, the main point I just wanted to make is that this pandemic actually laid bare many inequalities and disparities, and uh, particularly that of domestic violence against women and girls and also violence against children. And these inequalities, as Dr. Nina was saying, need to be re-examined, looked into, so that the lessons that can be taken from what actually transpired have longer-term consequences in how we have been dealing and handling these human rights uh, uh, issues. Thank you very much. Michael, your hand was up. Yes, no, I, I just wanted to make a quick comment about the, the impact of COVID-19 on democracy. And I think um, perhaps one of the important uh, aspects of constitutional democracy is actually the limitation on the power of, of, of government. And in, 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 in the midst of the, the pandemic and the kind of measures that have been adopted by, by government, I, I agree with many commentators who have criticized in particular the restriction uh, bill that was passed into law in the beginning of, of the pandemic in, in, in the manner in which it sort of vents parliament's power to check the executive if the executive had declared a state of emergency. So essentially what the legislation does is to you know, give the executive almost unlimited power to, to restrict rights in, in I mean, in a manner quite unrelated to COVID, because I suppose in the context of the, the passage of the law was COVID, but it's a general situation altogether without that necessary, you know, parliamentary supervision and, and, and kind of oversight over, over the executive. So, I mean, it is well known that uh, governments use, uh, you know, pandemics, emergency situations, always as a means of grabbing, grabbing more power if they can, because it is easier to convince people that limiting your right is a necessary condition to achieve a, a particular public good if there is an actual you know, situation on, on the ground. So whilst you could not have done in, a, in an ordinary you know, situation, when there is such a, a, a state of uh, disorder or panic, people are likely to accept the restrictions or government excesses. And I think that perhaps they, they brought powers given by the, given to the executive to limit rights quite uh, unrestrictedly and without parliamentary supervision is one of you know I think the pandemic has contributed to a, a blot on on our democratic credentials. If you ask. Thank for your comment, Mike. It's it's obvious that um, the pandemic has affected um, a lot of rights and a lot of. Um, principles that um, we live by. Um, panelists have spoken about the fact that the state, the state has certain responsibilities regardless of the fact that we are in a pandemic to ensure that even in the way that they handle some of the legislative um, uh, policy decisions that they make, it's obvious that the state um, has a responsibility to ensure that human rights are respected regardless of the fact that there are some of the things that need to be done. And this leads me to think about this issue. I mean, does it mean that we need to reconceptualize human rights? Do we really need to reconceptualize human rights? Looking at um, 
things that are happening around us in Ghana, in Africa, and even globally. Um, has the, the, the COVID-19, because you see, um, Nemna talked about the fact that COVID-19 has shown where we place human rights in terms of the order of things. So are we, is our understanding of human rights outdated? Do we need to really have a conversation globally in terms of that? And I'd like to start this with Michael. Michael, two minutes. And I'm, this time I'm watching the time. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's a, a yes and no. I mean, yes, because um, certain technological progress over time, uh, many situations that perhaps were not contemplated of when the current system of human rights was put in place. I mean, Dr. Nana talked about digital rights and how more and more we are living our lives online. But in, you know, at the time when these rights were conceptualized, we didn't really think of a situation where more and more people you know, live their lives online and express themselves online. And, and, and that we have perhaps lagged behind the technology in how rights uh, and, and all sorts of generally is, is a program. But I think perhaps the one thing that we need to uh, recalibrate our minds to is paying more attention to economic, social, and cultural rights because we seem to have a very limited understanding when we think we talk about human rights. It, I mean, most governments are not, would not object to the idea of a fair trial or you know, having your, your, your rights to not to be tortured, respected, but are quite unreceptive when you say things like housing and, and water and food. And because of the kind of a, economic uh, situations that we live in, the, the resources that are not easily available, we're not even making the efforts to, to you know, focus on these particular rights. So of course, I mean, but the new developments in, in, in the sphere of technology and how that impacts on, on human rights and how we can you know, sort of uh, broaden our understanding of human rights. I think generally, we need to really treat all human rights as you know, interdependent, interconnected, and interrelated in, in a way that we don't really just, the, the rights that we think are easy to fulfill because they don't really require a lot of uh, a financial outlay, but that we forget about the other things, you know, we need to make our, our lives more dignified and, and, and to enjoy this existence that we have. I can get three minutes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nana. Are we, do we have to reconceptualize human rights? I, I was just praying you ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> I particularly love this question. And I will say that yes and yes, we need to reconceptualize our understanding of human rights. And that discussion is already going on in the global north. Is it happening in the global south? No. But yes, we need to. I mean, our understandings of right to privacy, right to property is beginning to change. In terms of a right to virtual property, for, under, for example, in terms of right to property, what are the conceptions in relation to a right to virtual property? While traditionally you can own property and deal with it as you would, it is not the same in terms of virtual property. And you know, life is going on in terms of a virtual space where you're beginning to have avatars, people having a second life online. 
What are the discussions in relation to the right to privacy? Privacy is no longer defined in the way it was in the past, considering that states can take your information as the please, as an alibi for promoting the welfare of the state. What about children's rights? What is happening with children using, you know, with children having access online? The conceptions of child rights begins to change because then you begin to even talk about what are the rights of the child in terms of what he or she can access online. Rights to education is beginning to change. Right to education is no longer limited to people just having access to classrooms because then if access to classroom fails, is there provision for virtual access in terms of education? And so, yes, that discussion is beginning to happen and we must begin to, would I say that there should be a declaration on digital human rights, probably in the next few years, the OEWG and the GGE of the, of the UN are beginning to consider state responsibility in terms of cyber norms. And it's beginning to give states new obligation regarding respect for human rights. But fundamentally, everything we're talking about, particularly I like that Michael addressed the question from social and economic rights, addresses back to the issue of development. I reiterate that Africa is the only region where the right to development is a binding right, Article 22 of the African Charter of Human and People's Rights. It's been there. What have we done with it? It's there on paper. It is binding. Everything we are talking about, social and economic rights, access to housing, all of these issues that border on how the pandemic has been, you know, has been treated or how their pandemic has been addressed, falls back mostly to people expressing a right to development. What are we doing with Article 22? And I must round it up to say that we must be careful. As we move ahead, we must really reconceptualize or else what is happening now may become the new normal. The states may continue to say, you know what, there will be no movement because COVID-19 is not going to be abated in the next three months. It may just become the new normal for a long time without finding or prioritizing um, human rights. So thank you very much. You said two minutes, so let me see. Yes, yes, two minutes. <laughs> Mercy. Yeah, Nina. Um, the, the human rights, madam. So, <laughs> do is there need to reconceptualize human rights? And if there is, what factors account for this? If not, why not? <laughs> this is an essay question. And <laughs> two yeah. minutes. Nina, thank you. I agree with Michael and uh, Nena that it's yes and no. It's yes in the sense that as Dr. Nina uh, listed, there are things that we have to look at it again. Like education, now, when you go to communities, in Ghana, like Accra, when you go to Ixlegon uh, and other things, you will see the children using Zoom, doing Zoom classes. But what about my child in my village who has not even seen a computer before? So we have to look at this and reconceptualize human rights. We also have to look at the issues of the duty bearer. We have to put the duty bearers on their toes. As I said, uh, COVID has brought to bear what human right it actually is and who are the duty bearers of human rights. 
when you come to Ghana, we have issues of education. You go to places and there is no schools, hospitals. We don't have all these things. And it's the state who is supposed to provide these things. What are we doing? Are we putting any uh, measures to see that these things are given to the people? We have to look at it in different ways. We have to look for uh, going forward, as uh, Dr. Nina said, internationally, we are looking at the data protection, uh, right to privacy, my uh, details. Now, when you look at uh, our Ghana, when you go to the, the, the court, previously we were looking at right to uh, privacy, people recording people and other things. The, the, the court has interpreted that when it comes to criminal, you can record the court will accept it in, in terms of evidence in court. Do we have to go beyond that? We have to look at all that. We have to also look at um, the, 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 the children's rights uh, Dr. Nina talked about. So in, 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 a whole, in, in a whole, Ghana, we're looking at our human rights situation. We have to reconstructualize whatever we are doing. Another thing that we have to look at it, it's in our economic rights. You know, in the economic right, that is the issue facing Ghanaians. How many people are in the formal sector? How many people are in the informal sector? You have to look at that and then see to the future what is women rights going to help us to develop our nation. Thank you. Oh, wow. So we need to reconceptualize human rights. And Nana was asking about what we have done with Article 22. <laughs> uh, so um, African Commission um, uh, on people, Human and People's Rights. And she also talked about the fact that uh, the conversation about reconceptualization is happening in the global north, by global south, as usual. We are waiting for the North to run and then we see where we go. But um, what another issue I wanted to raise was, so this um, reconceptualization that um, we have agreed that is necessary now because of the COVID. Um, is there an urgency to it? Has COVID made it very urgent for us to, to really do that? And how urgent is it? Um, Michael? It is your take on that and after that I would want Dr. Jonas to has, um, have a take on that and then we can go to um, the participants who are listening to us online. So Michael, has the COVID-19 pandemic made it more urgent to reconceptualize human rights? I mean, thank you for the question. Like I, I, I said earlier, yeah. I mean, I think COVID has really perhaps exposed um, the kind of inequalities that exist in our, in our, in our various societies. Actually, paid to the basic necessities that that it takes to actually 
live a dignified life. So we're talking about a pandemic that read through contact with, with people and to perhaps stay away from each other and, and, and have you know, sufficient space to, to be able to, to socially distance. But in the midst of the pandemic, you need water to wash your hands so that you can, you can you know, clean yourself once you get into contact with the virus or, or, or you know, whatever the situation is. But the fact remains that in, in many places, these facilities do not exist. Housing is a big issue in Ghana. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that we have a, a deficit of 1.7 million housing. There are a lot of slums everywhere in, in, in Accra. It's, it really is something that should remind, uh, remind us that we, we, we have perhaps failed our, our people in, in, in a very big way when it comes to- I want to cut you, but this problem has always been there. My question is, well, it's, is it a total that is a process? Um, and, and processes take a long time to, to get where we are supposed to get them. So is there, because I see um, governments placing any premium on these things. Yes, they, they, they are doing it. My question is, I mean, has it become an issue because of the um, pandemic? And if it has become an urgent issue, um, let's see how we can push this agency to the position, to the duty bearers. Because from-, from I think, I mean, in- Yes, Michael, go on. In, in particular, when it, when it comes to, I mean, economic, social, and cultural rights, like uh, Dr. Nena said, states always put up the progressive realization argument in action. But as we know, the, the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which is responsible for monitoring the state's uh, implementation of that particular covenant, actually has stated that, you know, progressive realization is not an excuse to do nothing. And that states must, you know, have specific targeted measures in place to progressively realize these, these rights. So a, a country like Ghana, which is supposedly a middle-income country, right, a, over, over, cannot say that we don't have uh, the financial resources, so we do nothing about housing. So it, it, it really is very priority. Actually, do we have specific targets, per se, to say, well, we know there's a problem, we can't solve all of it in one day, but that every year we have a specific target that we need to hit because over the course of you know the next decade, we want to deal with this particular problem. So it, I, I think in the end, it really is what governments think is important to, to the population and perhaps what civil society is also pushing. I, I, you know, I, I, a couple of years ago, I, I read about uh, Ghana's implementation of international obligations. And one of my, you know, my, my, my uh, recommendations was that we don't really, we don't litigate rights in Ghana. We, we, we have this give it to God attitude, you know. You, really are, you are chuffed, but you don't want to antagonize people. You don't want to antagonize the state. But perhaps we need to put pressure on, on governments to, you know, fulfill the obligations to us in, in terms of the, you know, international treaties that they have signed up to voluntarily, that they would implement certain specific obligations towards people. I think it's it's a problem in many African countries where states ratify treaties but never domesticate them, don't take any measures to implement them, and hardly even report on the progress that they have made, you know, in the implementation of them.
So I, I think going forward, I mean, in the post-COVID era, we need to start seeing a bit more activism when it comes to the front of economic, social, and cultural rights, because I mean, we, we fare quite well on the, on the front of civil and political rights. But we really need to put more boots on the ground to, to you know, put pressure on government so that at least we may be able to, to gains. Right. Thank you, Michael. Oh, talking about um, reporting on our, on our human rights obligations, Ghana hasn't fed <laughs> well for a very, very long time, especially at the level of the African Commission. You go there and you realize that we are far, far, far behind. I mean, this speaks to the core of the issue, that where do we place human rights? But uh, Yona, I, I was... Um, I wanted your take on the agency. Has COVID-19 made it there? Because you actually on the um, reconceptualization of human rights, um, I didn't take your, your view on that one. But the general consensus seems to be that um, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to do. And that conversations are already going on. So uh, is it an urgent? discussion that we need to have and if it is how urgent especially with this COVID-19 pandemic hanging around our necks. Thank you Dr. Mina and as you've uh, articulately uh, stated that um, there is urgent need to discuss about the disproportionate impact that uh, this pandemic is having on vulnerable segment of uh, society, particularly women, girls, children, uh, persons with disabilities. And there is this rise in domestic violence that need to be uh, addressed immediately. As Michael was saying, there may be some steps which may be taking some time, but if you take a look, for instance, at uh, domestic violence, government cannot come up with justifications and excuses to prolong measures aimed at stemming out domestic violence for instance. And uh, it's not also possible for government uh, not to, you know, reduce the number of uh, prison population and also thereby reducing incarceration of uh, inmates in prisons. We have seen that incarceration Overcrowding of prisons has actually and uh, affected by one other issue we can take from this uh, lesson is the uh, need for homeschooling. How parents are in a position to be able to assist homeschooling of children, and what can be done with a view to be able to reinforce education system, and how we can uh, further reinforce the obligation of parents. Uh, in terms of homeschooling of children is, I think, one other important uh, lesson that can be learned from this exercise. But how can we be on top of the uh, impending humanitarian crisis writ large that is hovering on the horizon of uh, vulnerable segments of society who are unable to even uh, fetch water or be able to purchase necessities in life? And these are the issues which I think are very urgent that need to be looked into 
But there is also this spin-off that we are now in a position to, to talk, although we are physically distant from one another, technology unites us and we are now in a position to be able to uh, push human rights agenda, like what we are doing right now. This is also one other spin-off, you know, beneficial effect of uh, the pandemic that we are using digital technology increasingly to uh, advocate on human rights agendas of common concern. Thank you, Mina. Thank you very much, Doc. Um, to those who are listening to us, um, are there any questions you can ask your questions and then the panelists would um, respond. But whilst we are waiting for that, um, I want to find out from the panelists, are there some interventions that any of them want to make on the discussions that we had so far on the agency in terms of um, the, uh, the reconceptualization of human rights? And one of the things that we could also discuss is um, whether governments all over the place, as part of the, 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 the implementation of these rights, how can we ensure that they, they, they don't go overboard? Like in some places, because it's a health issue, like has been said, and people are likely to succumb to some of the draconian laws. How do we ensure? Because you see, human rights are rights that, um, uh, um, like um, um, Michael said, are difficult to really uh, assess justice on. So how do we ensure that? Whilst we talk about the agency and having a conversation, how do we ensure that? Any of the panelists can pick up that one. Well, Nina. Yes, Mercy. Uh, in, uh, in respect of the agency, I think it's very urgent that we have to rethink, we have to, because COVID took X by surprise. It came unannounced. We don't know when another pandemic is going to strike. And therefore the things, the lessons that we've learned from COVID, we have to take it up and work towards it. We have to start now, start now. We don't know when another pandemic is going to strike. I would say that as Michael said, we are supposed to put some agency and put some pressure on our duty bearers. It's not like they are doing us a favor. It's their duty to provide. So we should put like civil society, human rights institutions, everybody we have to come on board to put pressure for we to work towards the future. Like the issue of inequality, it came to bear and it's still there. Non-discrimination is still going on. So it's 
not that we should wait for some years before we think about it or, or we have to start. That's what I want to say about the agency of reconceptualization. Thank you. Thank you, Mercy. I'm expecting questions from um, um, listeners and participants, but it looks like, like um, we don't have any questions. So I'll move straight into um, people's and, and um, final comments from our panelists. And I will start with um, Dr. Nenna. Your final comments, please. Thank you, Mina. Um, the first thing I want to say is um, looking back at the issue of urgency and its related issue. First of all, I've been careful not to talk about the imposition of restriction law in Ghana, but I must say that, yes, Article 4 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is expressed. And so Ghana has its right to you know, address the pandemic as a situation of emergency, but this is not just to Ghana, but particularly to African states. We must go back and look at the UN Human Rights Committee general comments on the state of emergency, which gives guidelines um, regarding how we approach this issue. But then again, there has been so much discussion in terms of holding states accountable to human rights, and that has, you know, overwhelmed the discussion in majority of aspects. I want to say that in terms of addressing this issue. Whether we go back to discussions now, the reality is that, you know, expectations, outcomes will not happen immediately. And the new norm is to approach human rights discussion from a multi-stakeholder approach. Because it is now illogical to argue that only states are duty bearers when it comes to human rights obligations. You know, what of corporations, even in Ghana? You know, of course, we may not hold them accountable on a binding measure, but now, you know, there are forward thinking approaches in terms of voluntary principles. You know, what of individuals themselves? Do they have obligations to themselves? Are we making efforts in line with human rights based approach to even fulfill demands for ourselves in light of human rights expectations? What of non-governmental organizations? So as we progress with the discussion, we must look at it, not just from a human rights perspective, but we must also approach it from a multi-stakeholder approach. And what I'm saying is not an abstraction of human rights or international human rights obligations, because um, internationally it is expected that everyone has duties to themselves and within the community, which alone is the source of their free and full development in terms of human rights. So let's approach this, not just from a human rights perspective, but also a people-centered approach in terms of how we move forward with the discussion. Because sincerely, no matter what we say, there is a difference between you know, having these discussions, if you draft laws, even in the most draconian terms, if it is not enforced, if it's not implemented, it's as good as a nullity. So having policies that exist where it, do not, it does not measure up to expectations of people would achieve nothing. So let's bring together stakeholders. Let's consider people in terms of how we move forward. And when we put people at the center of these considerations, then we can say we have regard for human rights because then we will enshrine non-discrimination. We will enshrine accountability, just like Messi was saying. 
you know, the state, we are so afraid of accountability in Africa. And so we hide behind the guise of, you know, oh, this is what the law says, giving arbitrary powers to the legislature, like Michael said. You know, when we begin to consider different aspects of government, the person who is importing medications, how is he doing that? What is his obligation to people? The person who is collecting data, how is he collecting data? If we don't approach it this way, like I said earlier, it may become the new norm. Messi said, the reality is that COVID-19 is not going to be abated tomorrow. And so how long would we continue collecting data arbitrarily? Would that continue even after now? Will tech companies take advantage of it if there is no multi-stakeholder approach to continue infringing on people's data? What will happen to my rights to be forgotten even after the COVID situation? So uh, that is what I can add to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nena. I think I can see two hands up. Um, Samuel, other questions? I think I can too see, okay, one hand. Um, is there a question? I can see Seydou Batuga. Seydou, do you have a question for us? Hello, Samuel. Hello. I can see hands up. Unfortunately, I don't know why they can't hear me. Okay, since um, well, maybe they can't hear me. So if when they 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 are able to hear, we'll take the question. So I will go to um, Doctor Yona. Your final thoughts, please. Thank you very much, Mina, for this uh, opportunity. And uh, what I just wanted to say by way of concluding remark is that this pandemic is sometimes exacerbated by conflict situations. So it now becomes double burden. In some parts of Africa where you have conflicts, how are you going to be able to uh, address the many adverse effects of uh, the pandemic? This is also one of the major issues that need to be looked into. Moreover, you have a situation whereby the uh, pandemic is sometimes politicized for the wrong reasons. This is supposed to be a health care threat, but there have been instances resorting towards some unnecessary um, use of uh, draconian measures to curtail civil and political rights, as we have witnessed in some parts of Africa. So this is also another very concerning uh, issue. Also, you have a, a, this problem of internet shutdown in different parts of Africa. Uh, on the occasion of, uh, do, during the time that uh, the pandemic was raging, you have telecommunication and the internet sh shutdown, which also uh, further exacerbates the problem we have uh, in uh, terms of addressing the pandemic. So we have a number of uh, concerning trends. What we need at this juncture is transformational steps and not regression. But what we witnessed actually in the shape of declaration of state of emergency, we have witnessed regression when we are actually aspiring for transformational steps. Thank you, Mina. Thank you um, very much. Um Dr. Yunus. Um, 
Dr. Etuya. Doc. I mean, uh, Doc. Yes, yeah. I understand you need to make an intervention. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you, panelists, for the excellent, insightful discussions. I've really enjoyed it uh, sitting in my office here. Um, I think the issue of reconceptualization of human rights, um, I will largely support that opinion uh, from two angles. One is the fact that the, the pandemic has been used to further the authoritarian interest of a number of states. So first of all, we need to, and, and it has created a situation, of course, that has been the norm more or less, but the pandemic seems to have um, concretized it and made it something that should be normalized and accepted as the way things should go. So first of all, we need to, um, what is the word? We need to move away from that perspective and change the narrative and try to deconstruct that notion that issues of human rights violations are to be normalized. And, and it has been, the justification is the fact that COVID has come. So we have a situation where in a number of African countries, the emergency legislation that they put in place, they don't have sunset clauses. And Ghana is one example. And so that is one reconceptualization that we need to do um, but the other one is the progressive one where uh, Nina and, and Michael and others are talking about. So that we will have to look at what is, if we say property, does it call for an expanded definition of property rights? If we talk about right to information, to what extent do we cover the digital dimension? I know that the new African, um, um, African Commission on Human Rights Declaration on Right to Freedom of Expression covers that. But it, it, COVID has called for a, a new redefinition or expansion of that digital space uh, and understanding of uh, the right to um, freedom of expression. So uh, in, in that context, I've been having discussion with uh, um, the African Union um, Commission on International Law about how we see uh, we can conceptualize international law in such a way as to indicate that when we are talking about the customary law principle that it should be state practice plus opinion juris. The emerging norm is opinion juris rather coming first and state practice. But when it comes to human rights, you cannot use state practice to say whether it is um, of concomitant, con concordant practice over a longer period of time, that state practice should, um, evidence, should be evidenced by what states do. With regard to human rights, it's rather the opposite because states don't respect human rights. So to be able to identify state practice with regard to human rights, it should rather be based on the people's conception and craving for that particular right. The advocacy work that has gone into it, because at the end of the day, Human rights is for the individuals, for groups, but not the states. And so we cannot look at state practice to determine that uh, customary law principle has evolved. And from that angle, 
we can look at the various, various numerous um, declarations, communiques, and so on on health issues that African states have come up with. I identified over 30 of them, the Abuja Declaration, the Maputo, the Luanda, and so on. And in all of it, when African states face some pandemic or some um, health uh, disease outbreak and so on, they come up with these declarations and communiques. But when everything um, goes down, they go back to sleep. Numerous ones on malaria, HIV, Ebola, and so on. And so my conclusion is that this should constitute state practice. The fact that states have come up with such documents, that should be opinion juris. And then with regard to state practice, it is the fact that these are supposed to serve the interests of the people. So the right to health should be prominent going forward. It should be one of the rights that should be championed. And I agree with the view that we have to also revise or relook at the notion of progressive realization of rights. Because even the, the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights has identified about four or five aspects of the rights in the covenant that doesn't need progressive, uh, the principle of application of the principle of progressive realization. So these are my, my quick thoughts on the, um, on the subject. And I think that it, is, it has been very interesting and hopefully we can come up with some um, concrete written work on this so that it can move the human rights discussion forward in Africa. But uh, let me end up with a question that um, having discussed the need for um, reconceptualizing human rights, can anybody share any thoughts as to how we should go about this? For example, should we call for a new African Charter on Human and People's Rights to incorporate this? Should we just rely on the African Commission coming up with resolutions and declarations or what? Thank you. Thank you very much, Doug. Very insightful comments. Um, before um, um, one of the panelists take the questions that Doug has asked, there is um, one of the participants, Seidu, who wanted to make an intervention so or ask a question. Seidu, are you able to ask your question now? Hello, Seidu. Hello? Oh, I hear he's not, he's not, he's not on. So, um, who would want to I think he actually posted the question. He did. Did you see it? Yes. So would you want to answer that? No, so there's a, there's a question about a uh, vaccination and uh, the, the fear that people and he's asking if that would impede human rights. I mean, I, I think really it's a it's a very dicey question. I mean, it's not a, there's no straightforward answer. There is surely a, a broader public health concern that if there is a healthcare emergency that is affecting the whole world, then perhaps if there is a vaccine vaccine that can actually prevent the spread of 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 the 
the virus, then it's a necessary, you know, medical procedure uh, that uh, states can can impose. But then there is also the individual's right to bodily integrity and to refuse uh, medical as as an adult. So I suppose one would have to, you know, clearly look at what what is really the the you know the pros and cons in, in forcing people to get vaccination. But in forcing people to get to get vaccination, how exactly do you force them? Is it you make it a precondition to accessing services? In which case that might be, I mean, overly very intrusive if people cannot access access basic services, for instance, without uh, having a, a vaccination. But I think that in the end, there would be some 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 form of uh, you know coercive measures in some instances where. For instance, if you were flying to a, a particular country, that state could say that if you don't have vaccination, they will, they will not allow you to, to enter. And I think it, it already happens with uh, things like yellow fever vaccination. If, if, if you, if, for instance, if you left Accra without a yellow fever card and to, to Johannesburg, they will return you back if you didn't have any, any vaccination. So I think it really would, it, it, it will require careful examination and balance on exactly what would be the scope of these kind of uh, forced vaccinations. But I, I would think that governments need to be careful and not, you know, being open. people are quite skeptical about the safety and the, you know, all these kinds of other concerns about how quickly the, the, the vaccine was developed. It's, it's, it's safe for everyone. And if someone has an objection to taking, perhaps states can weigh the, the pros and cons and decide we, and can can be forced to to get vaccinated. So I don't I don't really have a clear answer, but I think it it it, it will in some way accept as to how exactly that will happen to see. Thank you, Michael. And um, Nana. Yes, please. You want to take a um, um, prof's question? Yes, absolutely. Um, you you made a comment earlier you said mina you made a comment earlier you said we in africa sometimes we tend to wait for you know the international for the global north to take decisions before we begin to take and rightly in considering how we progress do we have an african charter on digital human rights how do we approach it presently even internationally um there's this approach or hesitant approach to how should we have a declaration on you know digital human rights there is a proposed african charter by an ngo in africa in the eu there's a proposal for you know european digital rights but internationally what the un has done is to say that for now let's approach it from a voluntary basis and they released 11 cyber norms norms on responsible state behavior in cyberspace, which specified 11 norms. Now, what is interesting about that is that there has been a non-paper, a non-working paper on guidelines as to how these cyber norms will play out. There are three African states in the GGE forum, but there is no African response whatsoever. 
So it is even difficult for me to say this is how we're going to approach it. But what the African Union has done is to, you know, publish a strategy, the digital transformation strategy for Africa. And you can see that it is worded in a way that states should, should approach policies and strategies from a human rights perspective. National jurisdictions are trying to make efforts. Last year, the parliament in Nigeria passed the digital rights bill. Then he got to the president for assent and he refused to give assent. He said it was a duplication of rights and that we should be careful, you know, not to duplicate rights. So it would not happen. Like a duplication of rights. Absolutely, I don't even understand because the digital rights bill, you know, it talked about disability rights, internet access for people who are disabled. It talked about anonymity rights in terms of cyberspace, which would not even happen traditionally. Now, there was no assent. In Africa and national jurisdictions, let's even talk about the Malabo Convention. The Malabo Convention makes provision for protection of data. I tell you that that, that convention cannot take off because it has not achieved the minimal ratification required. So African states you know, would rather not, Jonas talked about what happened in Ethiopia you know, breach of internet access. There have been the same discussions going on in Nigeria, you know, curtailing social media access. Will Africa want to have this discussion? I doubt it in the next two, three years. It's a lot of politics, like Yuna said. So for now, I can comfortably say that let's approach the discussion from policies, you know, from strategies, you know, are we going to have a declaration? I don't foresee it happening soon. It may happen eventually, particularly, like you said, Prof, if Africa begins to think it will benefit us in this angle, oh, let's go on, let's have it, let's sign it. When it comes to implementation, and it may affect governments or hold governments accountable, it becomes another discussion. For now, like I said, I don't even know if a declaration will solve it because at the end of the day, declaration is not even binding. Having a mere declaration will not be as effective as having policies which we're obligated to respect or which we're obligated to implement. So um, generally, let's start from policies. Let's respect human rights. What is the situation? For Africa, I really can't say that we would achieve the same measure of standards. And just last week, I was saying, where is Africa here? The non-working paper, no comments, nothing. Are we not having these issues in Africa? Yes, we have. We are having them. But it is a question of priority as well, Prof. We are still prioritizing food. You know, I'm not saying it shouldn't be a priority. We are prioritizing carbon malaria, you know, other issues we are placing. Unfortunately, we have this hierarchy. ICT issues, digital rights issues are still not a priority for us. You know, when you talk about this to your fellow Africans, they say, please, when people have not eaten, Dr. Messi was talking about housing and people are cramped. And you're here telling me about right to privacy. Please, I just want to put my details and use Instagram. <laughs> we think it's a thing of vogue. You know, and, and people, you know, we think it's vogue. I'm using the internet for banking and people's monies are being stolen every day, virtually. People are suffering. Banks are not even coming out to tell you what they are going through and the amounts of monies they are losing because they are afraid of losing their customers. You know, people think it's, we, we, we feel we are exposed. We think we don't realize it's an amenity. We think it's luxury. You know, so those are the issues, priority in terms of, and I think we should also start from raising awareness about these issues. Because like I said, it's a multi-stakeholder thing. Individuals themselves, 
are you respecting your right to privacy in the first place? Every website you sign on to, you give your mother's maiden name, you give your password. You know, we are not even understanding this thing. So let's start subtly from awareness raising, education, transfer of ICT skills, capacity building for important sectors. And then, you know, we progress to policies as well. Strategies are important. And then maybe someday we would have a declaration. I'm hopeful we'll have. And of course, Africa will go and sign that declaration and come back and want to enter reservations of oh that's not very nice <laughs> <laughs> but the truth anyway agree with me on this that we we, yeah, like, that, that, we like to sign on and then argue that we are being attacked or being i certainly do i certainly do <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for 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 the comment and then i think you've gone into very great details to respond to prof's issue and we have um and thank you, Michael, for responding to Sadu's issue. I think Dr. Jonas also gave a response. And we have, I think we have how many minutes? About 10 minutes or 12 minutes. So I will take um, final words from Messi. And then Michael. So Messi, your, your final words. And maybe if Prof would have something else to add afterwards, then we'll see how it goes. So, Messi. Well, Mina, thank you. Um, as uh, Dr. Nina said, Ghana, we are, or Africa, we say we hurriedly sign instruments. But when it comes to domesticate, it becomes a problem. So I will not advocate for uh, instruments or other things, but I would say that we should let our countries, the authorities put some policies in place for us to look at what they have for us in future. And then, as I said, we have to still push and push. You know, we've learned a lot. We've gained some, but we've lost some during COVID. There should be a lesson from COVID in the way we think about human rights. We should look at it in a different perspective as we used to, because human rights, as I said, cannot be taken away from us. It's inalienable, cannot be taken away from us. We need to raise awareness for everybody to know that human right is entitlement and is not just a request. Thank you. Thank you very much. And then finally, but not the least, Michael. Yes, I mean, th thank you, Mina. I, mean, I think following up from uh, what uh, Messi just said, I mean, we, we, we need to be aware that rights will not be fulfilled without vigilance and accountability. That, you know, our, our countries sign up to all these treaties and commands and, and they take no measures to implement them. So we need to make human rights an important issue in all spheres of life. We need to put it on the political agenda. We need to fight it in the courts. We need to 
you know, have social movements that are actively from the bottom up fighting for their rights and in, uh, ensuring that their, their standards of living is, is improved. We need to perhaps take a bit more interest in the kind of reporting obligations that our states have when it comes to the human rights uh, treaties that they, they, they have signed and ratified. And especially when it comes to the kind of concluding observations that they, they receive in bodies, because these are some of the, 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 the means through which states are guided in, in the measures that they can take to better implement you know, the obligations under various human rights treaties. So that civil society needs to take a very active role on governments. Otherwise, we would have all these nice laws and, and, and policies and, and ideals, but the substantive you know, achievement of, of these rights would, 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 would become an, an illusion or at least take a very long time because we really are, are not putting enough pressure on, on our governments to, to fulfill the, the obligations. I think I, I will end it here for now. Thank you very much, Michael. Prof, do you have any final words? Well, I think the, the panelists have said it all. I'll just reemphasize the point that we need to pay serious attention to economic, social, and cultural rights moving forward. There's been too much lip service on, on that aspect of rights. Um, from the time of independence, African leaders said, food on the table is what is important. They came up with a full belly thesis and so on. But in the end, they were, so they were abusing our civil and political rights, saying that they wanted to give us economic, social, and cultural rights. If we do the, the checks, we haven't got both. So it is time to lay emphasis on economic, social, and cultural rights while we also um, fight for civil and political rights. The two, of course, as we know, they are interrelated and indivisible. But this is time to pay more attention to economic, social, and cultural rights issues. Thank you very much. And thank you, Prof. Um, on my part, I think this has been a very interesting discussion. Um, as the theme was, reimagine the place of human rights post-COVID Ghana. And we, we, we extended it to look at it broadly. Um, from what I garnered from the conversation, there is a serious need to, to think for, about human rights for the South, Global South to plug in, and for we as a society to be interested in what goes on around us. I want to, on behalf of the University of Ghana Law Faculty, say a big thank you to um, Dr. Nena. Uh, then, okay, let me leave the Dr. Nena. Mercy, Michael, and Dr. Yona. Thank you so much for participating. I think that we had a very interesting discussion. We've learned a lot of lessons and we would agree that we, we need to really think about the place of human rights in our society. Because like Messi said, we do not know when COVID-19 is going. We do not know what other pandemic is going to come up. And if we do not prepare, we will realize that the new normal has become the normal. Thank you for your participation. And thank you for all the participants who also listened in via um, Zoom and via Facebook. Facebook. Thank you so much. And on that note, I would say bye-bye. Thank you, Mina.